This isn't something anyone wants to readily admit, but do you detect some fatigue in your organization when it comes to working on patient safety? After all, many of you, many of your colleagues have been at this for at least a decade and longer, and there's a lot of good work and improvement to show for it and to be proud of. At the same time, no one ever said the journey would be short or easy. Indeed, it's quite the opposite, more like never-ending. And sometimes improvement work creates its own burdens. That's why we're going to talk about reliability and culture and systems of safety on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live bi-weekly, and after the show, you can find this on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host, Improvement. Producer Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Now, many argue improvement work may be at an inflection point with patient safety, perhaps most especially in the U.S. Recognizing this and coming up with new paradigms and mindsets can really help reset agendas and also re-energize teams and the work itself. That's why we're so glad you've joined us and why I can't wait to turn things over to two outstanding experts on safety. So to introductions in just a moment, but first here's IHI's John Gothier. He wants to remind you about how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right side of the screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto your computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, Vicky's provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI. Please take some time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks, John. And we're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway point of the show. We do welcome tweeting during and after the program. And thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can capture the conversation on social media and uh, in, connect it up with some other followers. And again, as John said, if you're only tuned into WIHI by phone and not logged in, do uh, email info at IHI.org and they'll send you all the material. Uh, we have at the ready for you today. All right, now to my guest, joining by phone from Vermont, where I'm told almost all the leaves are off the trees. Uh, and if Carol goes away for two weeks, there may be snow when she comes back. So Carol Harridan is an IHI vice president and a member of the team responsible for developing innovative designs in patient care. She currently leads IHI's work with Health Improvement Scotland. She's leading work in Denmark, the south of England, and in the U.S. to improve the safety of healthcare systems. Carol is also executive lead for the IHI Patient Safety Executive Development Program. So welcome, Carol. 
Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. All right. And also, and he tells us it's really nice in the 70s in San Diego today, so there. So out in California today, wondering why he lives in New England, Alan Frankel is a member of Safe and Reliable Care, LLC. For over 30 years, Alan has used his clinical experience as an anesthesiologist and his knowledge of patient safety and reliability science to help healthcare organizations and clinicians improve the care they deliver to patients. Alan has trained over 2,000 patient safety officers worldwide, and he's a co-creator and a co-teacher with Carol in the IHI Patient Safety Executive Development Program. Welcome, Alan. Uh, hi, Matt. Real pleasure to be with you. Fantastic. All right, we're going to start with Carol, and uh, we're going to sort of, you know, team tag this a little bit. Carol will say something, and Alan will chime in. Alan will say something, and Carol will chime in. So we're going to start with Carol, and then Alan can join in. So I think it's important to start with the good news. How has patient safety improved this past decade? I know that's a huge question, but what stands out? Carol, we'll start with you. Yeah, a lot, a lot of things stand out actually. We've seen, um, we've seen great work in the reduction of, uh, specific defects, particularly things like infections, uh, pressure ulcers, uh, sepsis, uh, which is, you know, an enormous, uh, leap. Uh, we've seen, of course, things like ventilator-acquired pneumonias and central line infections, all of which carry a pretty big burden of mortality. Uh, they've, they've improved uh, quite a lot. Most places have done really great work on them in their organization. At least some places in their organization uh, are doing really uh, stellar work in these, in these areas, and that's true around the world. So we're talking about the United States right now, but I would say around the world we're seeing that same kind of focus on um, particular defects that uh, have improved. We've also seen... Um, a secular trend of mortality reduction over time, and um, we think that's that's due to some good work in in, our, in our safety, but it's also due to a great deal of work in better pharmacology and technology and other advances in surgery and and medicine. So hard to parse all that out all the time, but we are uh, we are seeing some uh, good good things. That's for sure. Okay, thanks, Carol. Alan, uh, what would you add to that? Yeah, and, and it is additive as I'm thinking about it, Match, because, um, uh, you know, Carol uh, appropriately targeted, you know, immediately specific metrics uh, that have changed in healthcare um, over the last decade. Uh, you know, and I'd say from my perspective, and certainly, you know, I see what Carol sees, I'd say also in addition um, that when I go into organizations, you know, worldwide, uh, really, but certainly in the U.S., and, you know, uh, in depth, is that organizations um, understand the language of safety and improvement, and um, and it's you know quite apparent when you uh, walk into organizations that there's a conversation about teamwork and team behaviors and certain types of leadership and improvement skills and uh, and human factors. It, you know, I mean, it's extraordinary if you if you go back to the early '90s, which is you know, and, and I mean, Carol and I have both been at this long enough to have three decades to think about this. Uh, but when we started in the early 90s, the term human factors wasn't a term that was known in the industry, um, even though, you know, it was a, a reliability term and there was the Human Factors Society in engineering that had a 30,000-person conference every year, uh, and we didn't even know the term. You know, today all of that is, you know, the concepts are sort of solidly embedded in the industry, and they've coalesced in the last 10 years 
into um, you know much more solid base uh, than they were before. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, by the way, thank you both, uh, Carol and Alan. And I do want to invite, we, we will turn to comments and questions uh, in the second part of the show. But you are welcome, those of you tuned to the program today, to, you know, answer some of these questions as we go along here. So if you uh, have been at this for a while or you have a sense of how things have changed, uh, go ahead and chat in some of your own sense of accomplishments in safety. What do you notice in your own organizations? All right, Carol, back to you. So what's the problem? Uh, we did frame this show as wanting to absolutely, uh, you know, acknowledge important work that's going on, but maybe some things we need to be thinking a little bit harder about if we're really going to sustain and really deepen uh, what's possible here. So why the concern? Carol, start with you. Yeah, you know, so if you were to think about advances in medicine uh, along uh, the last 100 years, let's, we could even go the last 15, uh, tremendous advances in care and cardiac care and cancer care, uh, care of particular systems, uh, th- th- those are all, those are all terrific. I guess the, the question is, or at the end of the day, are Americans healthier than they used to be? I, I'm not sure. So whenever we optimize particular systems, uh, we always run the risk of not optimizing the whole. And I think that that's what we're, we see sometimes with our work, that there are some problems that run across our whole organization that we have to work on that individual projects sometimes address, but oftentimes don't because it's hard in a particular project to do that. So if I'm working on, uh, if I'm working in, on pressure ulcers, for instance, and I'm working, those, that's a germane piece of work every place, uh, in the, in the, uh, hospital and nursing homes and, uh, and extended care facilities, uh, wherever we're working, essentially maybe not primary care, although, um, depending on their patient population, they might be interested in it too. But when we're thinking about, uh, pressure ulcers, for instance, the teams that are working on this and working hard uh, to make this uh, to make these a zero, uh, the incidence of the pressure ulcer zero, then when we're looking at how they do their work, they they may optimize something that, like developing a checklist that works really well for reduction of uh, pressure ulcers. Unfortunately, um, we see the proliferation of checklists uh, by each project. So projects will often have. Uh, a number will have at least one checklist because it's become quite popular and, and they can be a really useful way to, to, uh, do improve, to improve. And then if we add four or five, six other projects, which we, which we will because we, we're trying to work on multiple things at a time, we see the burden of improvement for frontline staff can be really, um, excessive. So thinking about how we do this across the system, how we minimize that the kind of um, uh, the kind of tools and the kind of work required to get that improvement uh, can only happen when we're thinking about improvement in a bunch of areas. Uh, so I know that there are some really great there's some great work out there looking at um, looking at tools that address a number of things. 
uh, at once. So when you start to think about mobility, you start to think about sedation, you start to think about delirium, all of those things uh, come together. And we start to think about how do we assess patients uh, with regard to all those things. And, and when, you, when we do that, when you approach safety and improvement that way, we tend to think way more holistically and create much less of a burden for uh, the staff who are working at the front end of this. So thinking about a system of safety where we're looking at multiple components, because we know increasingly we know how complex this is. I, I was on a piece of work with James Reason uh, a couple of years ago, and, and he said this. He said, you know, folks in, 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 in healthcare and in safety, uh, they think that it's a battle you can fight and win. And, in fact, he said it's uh, guerrilla warfare. It is constantly changing and morphing and going underground, and there are so many forces that are acting on it. It's much more complex uh, than even a lot of what we think of as really complex industry. So we need a we need an approach that takes on takes looks at a lot of different uh, elements that have to act together to create safety. So on the screen, you'll see a framework for clinical excellence, and this is our safe and uh, safe, effective, and reliable uh, care framework. And you'll see it's made up of two large systems, a learning system and a system of culture. And inside are individual elements that when we go in, we're often asked to go in, and Alan uh, does this a great deal as well, we're often asked to come in as critical friends into organizations and look at their safety work and give them some feedback about how they are doing and what's going great and what, what could be improved. And when we, when we, over time, we saw these elements just coming forward all the time. Those places that were doing well were working in all of these areas, and the places that weren't were not. And so Alan, uh, Safe and Reliable, uh, Alan, Michael Leonard, and, and a lot of us at IHI got together and, and developed this framework a number of years ago because we just kept seeing it being reinforced um, as a really predictive piece of work that when we go into organizations, we need to see these things. And when we didn't see these things, we found they did great work in small and maybe in smaller areas, laudable work. Still, the chance of it spreading and sustaining wasn't great uh, because it uh, didn't have leadership potentially or psychological safety or there wasn't transparency or a method for continuous learning. So when we look at this holistically, you think about safety as a systems property, not the property of a project. Although all work is going to be done, or most work is going to be done by projects. It's it's not that that that's a that's the incorrect way to do work. Uh, we're going to have to take take this on. We just need to think about it more holistically across a body of work instead of individual uh, defects. Uh, optimizing our work in individual defects. I think that's that's going to be our future. Um, we're going to have to think about this in a more, because it's so complex, we need to think about it in a more complex way. I guess in addition, you know, the kinds of things that we see, and a place, there are a number of places trying to work on these. When we look at uh, the more, our mortality diagnostic, which is a tool we use to, with organizations for them to study their mortality, get, get more uh, deeply into that information and data, into why patients die and where they die, we see, uh, we always hope for uh, I think organizations hope they're going to see two or three DRGs pop up and, oh, gosh, if we could just fix those, which would be hard enough. But, in fact, often it's communication, it's handovers, it's a failure to recognize and 
manage complex patients across the continuum of care. It's those things that are going to require a much more system-based approach and not um, an individual project-based approach. I think that'll, that'll get us there. Thanks, Carol. Um, appreciate all that. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about this framework, and I think Alan's going to pick up a thread talking about uh, culture. But, Alan, maybe I could have you first uh, address uh, anything that you might add uh, to uh, Carol's comments about what kinds of concerns there are uh, for you right now, what you're seeing. I know there's a lot of overlap because you and Carol work together and uh, have a fantastic uh, synergy and, and, and uh, sharing culture. So what kinds of things are you seeing that may be missing or are in, in some ways uh, allowing some stuff to kind of go unattended to? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, and, and Matt, you're right. Carol and I have been at this together for, uh, for a long time. So, um, so we do have, uh, I think, similar perspectives, but also um, come, come at it from a somewhat different lens, too. Um, one of the comments Carol made, which uh, I think is germane to your question, is um, IHI and certainly, you know, I and my group, um, we constantly go into organizations, we're invited to go into them, um, to look at, at the details in depth at the, you know, as the English say, the coal face where the work is being done um, to gain a picture of what the current state is within those organizations. Uh, and the privilege that I've had, and I think it's true for Carol too, uh, is that is that we get to do that a lot. Um, there aren't a lot of folks who do. Um, I think part of that is what gives me the confidence uh, to do the work I do and to you know have the conversation we're having on um, on this call. Um, if you were to ask me what I see when I go into those organizations, there are two insights. One is when you walk into places that are that are really special. Uh, at this point, you know, I kind of, I get, I know when I arrive in those places, um, you kind of get a feeling. Um, it's almost like a breeze on the back of your neck to some extent, but there's this feeling of what it's like when you arrive in these incredible little places. Unfortunately, not frequently enough large organizations. It's usually work settings within organizations. Um, but characterizing them and then, and, and by the way, you look at them and then you look at their quality data and their quality and their outcomes tend to be outstanding too. So there's, so this feeling about the culture that you, when you walk into a place, uh, turns out to match the data. And then you ask the question, so what differentiates that group from the rest? Um, and, and I'd say, um, probably the way to describe it is that in 2016, we have taken extraordinary, extraordinarily good knowledge bases around things like how do you manage, you know, and we've got management groups who go in and help do that. How do you do teamwork? Well, we have, you know, team steps and, um, and a codified way of teaching teamwork. Well, and how do you do improvement? Well, we've got a whole variety of components there. Of course, we've got obviously the model for improvement from IHI, but there's Lean and Six Sigma and, uh, you know, a variety of other names that go on that go into the improvement bucket. Um, but the perspective and the perception I have is that the majority of these um, uh, bodies of knowledge tend to get painted onto organizational cultures that are not that healthy. 
Uh, and the problem is that you can paint teamwork and leadership and improvement skills onto an organization, but if the foundational base, which is just cultural health, uh, is not strong, then the likelihood of being able to um, have those skill sets manifest effectively uh, is less. So point number one, I'd say, is that um, you can't just bring these concepts in. Um, you also have to deal with the underlying culture to make them robust. That's number one. And then the other, uh, the other comment I'd make is that um, the industry, either the healthcare industry, is in a state of constant change. And probably one of the biggest changes in 2016 is that we're not talking about hospitals and the community. Um, we are talking about, you know, accountable care systems and integrated care. Um, so the challenge now is to achieve reliability and safety from in the hospital all the way up to the, to the patient's home. And that means that you have a coalition of groups who have to manage that. And those coalitions, you know, whether it's hospice, palliative care, home care, physician office practices, nursing homes, then you get to the emergency room, into the hospital, um, and then the other social service groups, you know, physical and occupational therapy groups and so forth. And all of those together, each of those are work settings that have interfaces. And the challenge in 2016, certainly in the U.S. especially, is that those cultures in each of those organizations have to work together. So it's not like we're going in and teaching team steps in the hospital now. It's that you have to teach teamwork all the way out to the folks who are going in and helping patients in their homes. And, of course, you have to have patients engaged along the way also. So the challenges have become greater. And, by the way, we're also getting paid now in different ways that reward us for this integrated process of care. And as far as I can see, there are very few organizations that have been able to crack that nut in the United States um, in terms of managing this integration process effectively. It's really difficult to do. Wow. Okay. A lot of really important, very big thoughts here. And um, let's do this. Let's. Uh, I'm going to keep going here with you, Alan. And as you can see from this slide, we've got uh, culture at the top and learning system along the side uh, in this uh, slide. And we're uh, on the side, on this slide. And uh, I'm going to have Alan talk a little bit more about culture and the components. And one of the things when we were uh, planning today, and I was talking with Alan and Carol, we talked a little bit about communication and handoff failures and a way in which uh, a robust culture and a learning system, as Carol will tell us more about, uh, can help address those. So, Alan, walk us through this in terms of thinking about culture and anywhere you can sort of provide us with an example of what difference it can make uh, in sort of day-to-day -day care, please do. Uh, sure, sure. Well, so let me take a minute with this slide and, and just explain, you know, there's terms on here which are kind of almost generic terms, and you'd say, well, so what do they really mean? So let's, let's start at the end in mind. Um, the learning system that we're referring to here um, is quite specific. It's the ability of a work setting, and by work setting I'm referring to department, division, unit, you know, a group of people who work together in a place that they would identify, you know, which could be home care, it could be the radiology department, it could be the billing office in a hospital, 
um, learning systems have the capacity to self-reflect, identify their defects or concerns, and those defects have to be both clinical, cultural, and operational. So learning systems self-reflect daily and regularly on the component parts that don't allow them to achieve what they'd like, cultural, clinical, and operational, and have the capacity to change those in a robust way. Um, in order to do that, and you see the gray going across here, and this is woven together because um, it's essentially saying this is, it's complicated to look at when you walk into a healthcare uh, work setting. Um, although once you understand the component parts, you, you understand the weave, it becomes a whole lot easier. Um, so if we can look at those defects and act on them, that requires leadership skills and improvement skills, obviously. Um, the cultural base on which this learning system fits um, boils down to the perception by individuals in the work setting, number one, first and foremost, that they have voice so that when they speak up about the concerns, action occurs. And then we get into these issues of, you know, in order to have voice, well, you see the columns going down, leaders who know how to lead effectively, who create this concept we call psychological safety, um, you know, which is the ability to ask questions, ask for feedback, be appropriately critical or respectfully critical to suggest innovative ideas. You know, accountability is just culture um, that uh, people will feel they'll be treated fairly when things go amiss. Right? And that, you know, uh, in the last one, you can collaborate negotiate when you have differences, and that there are team behaviors that predispose to conversations about defects um, that become grist for the mill for the learning system. Um, okay. All so right. If you're, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, if you're asking for specific examples, I mean, there are just so many that we see that they're kind of, I mean, I'll give you very specific ones. Um, I'm in a lovely healthcare system that is doing outstandingly good work. Uh, they've now put in morning organizational huddles, you know, which I think have spread across the U.S. And when I speak to the frontline nursing managers, they say to me, yeah, we go to the huddles, but we would never talk about staffing on our floors. We were told that it shouldn't be included. So let me see if I understand this. We're going to figure out what's going on each day and how to deal with it in the organizational huddle, but no one's going to talk about the elephant in the room, which is that the nurse managers don't have the nurses that they need to take care of the patients um, and how that's going to get dealt with. And they're not going to do that because it's mm, the organization doesn't want to deal with this because of whatever, the union-based uh, yeah, staffing ratios that they don't want to uh, address or because they can't quite figure out how to solve the problem, so they won't talk about it that day. You know, it's kind of an extraordinary insight. We're going to do the huddles, but there's some things you're not allowed to talk about. Um, I was recently in an organization that is um, determined to achieve high reliability, because that's the new terminology now. Once again, I go speak to the frontline uh, front managers. Actually, I first had a conversation with the frontline workers who said, you know, our paychecks are never correct. Right? We don't get paid for overtime and stuff that's really frustrating. So then you speak to the managers, and the nurse managers say, yes, 50% of our time is spent trying to correct the financial issues that we are constantly dealing with in order to get our budgets appropriate. That organization wants to achieve high reliability, but the people who are going to help move them there are the managers in the units, 
and they don't, they're not going to have the bandwidth to do it um, because they haven't dealt with something that's pretty foundational, which is a finance office that is essentially undermining their capacity to, for the managers to do the work. So, uh, you know, and I've got stories like this that are just endless mm-hmm. where you've got well-meaning, well-meaning organizations um, who want to head in the right direction but don't look and reflect on where their defects are, cultural defects, and address them in ways that um, then allow them to move forward. Mm. Wow. Okay. Very good. I think that made some connections. And, uh, Carol, uh, jump right in here. Uh, I, I think these things, they're so integrated, culture and learning, but uh, give whatever emphasis you'd like. And I did throw up uh, this additional, we're back to the circle, uh, just to kind of fill this out a little bit. But please uh, add, add on to Alan's remarks and maybe talk a little bit about the learning system. Thanks. Sure. <clears throat> so the learning system is the other big piece. Uh, it, it's he- shown here. The reason we showed you the first slide was, this is, these are the components, and it looks as though certain things are attached to certain things, and that's all, and that's not true. Of course, the, the way, we, the reason we show that weave slide is to show that really they're all woven together. There's no, uh, there's no really clean way to show that, but it's, um, we want you to understand that that's absolutely the case, and, and to be sure to notice too that the engagement of patients and families is right at the center of all this. That doesn't happen. It's going to be very hard to achieve any of this. So when you think about the learning system right now, what we have is a, a lot of varied ways in which um, information and data is uh, both propagated and shared in an organization. So you've got your self-reporting systems, you've got risk management uh, data, you've got Sentinel event alerts um, or Sentinel event reports uh, usually generated uh, an RCA or root cause analysis. Uh, you have uh, data on individual uh, defects, you know, infection rates and um, uh, rates of harm uh, due to falls, et cetera. So you've got all of that data um, on top of all kinds of operational data as well. So lots of sources of information about uh, safe and effective care. You've got uh, process measures, uh, a great deal of process measures. You know, how often do you uh, people put on the right protocol or, or pathway, et cetera. Uh, and outpatient care, of course, a lot of that as well. You're starting to think about how many diabetics get their HbA1Cs, et cetera. So you've got a, just this huge amount of information and, and often um, held in very different pieces of the organization. So some of it's held in risk. Some some of that may be due to legal constraints. Um, I In Vermont, luckily, um, anything um, that's discussed it, with the improvement um, is 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 not discoverable. So we uh, we have to be sure it's within an improvement venue, but it's not discoverable. So risk and, and improvement work together all the time, com- completely interchangeably. I think though that what we what we have is we have so much data, but we have so little information. Honestly, uh, that's getting to the people who are um, who are trying to improve care. So. They may know uh, for their own unit how they're doing uh, with regard to certain things, but across the organization, uh, it's it's astonishing, and Alan will uh, second this, I'm certain. When we go to organizations and we, we do a diagnostic and we walk around and talk with people, we're frequently introducing the organization to itself by saying, hey, do you know over on the third floor west, they've solved this problem that you're having here. They, they're actually um, their, their data looks really good, or, or they'll say um, this. Just we ask them for something that's happened that is uh, worrisome to them. That they're 
a little stuck with and they tell us and we'll often say, yeah, they, they've actually got a great solution for that over on, um, you know, uh, in the annex or wherever. Uh, there's the, the system's knowledge about what's working well. For, we have tons of data around what's not working. We have almost no data around exemplars in our own organization. Who's just fantastic? Who's doing really well with regard to any particular um, issue culture? Uh, who's got teamwork that, you know, you look at who wants to work where. That's a great, that's usually a great uh, indicator of who's got a culture that, uh, that, that attracts people instead of repels them and who's, who's running from particular units, uh, because they're just so toxic to work on. So when we think about the learning system, we're thinking about how do you bring all of that information to, to bear so that organizations really know what's going on and they can use that information to improve. Uh, constantly. So this whole continuous learning system is really important. We do a lot of collecting and analyzing, uh, but the, and, and even some tacit identifying of actions, the actions are often remeasure and look at it in six months or do some education. And those are interesting, but probably not, um, that going to be that helpful. And this notion of ensuring feedback that when you actually do work, that Feedback occurs to all of the places that need it, not just the place that had the Sentinel event or an adverse event or those places who are doing really well. But we know right now that um, transparent sharing of data uh, is, is a challenge for a lot of places. And I, I will say this for those of you out there who are thinking about this. It's such an important – we have it in the learning system, but, in fact, it's a really important cultural um, uh, um, sign for us when we go into organizations and we can see data. The data is not in the nurse's lounge or it's not in the staff room or, or hidden away somewhere. It's out where all patients can see it. Uh, I would only say to you, I've I'm, I'm been underwhelmed continually by how interested patients are in this data. They're honestly, uh, they're there to see their loved ones. If their loved ones are in the hospital, it's because they're really sick. And they don't spend a lot of time looking at the walls. I, I've often taken patients out and their families, not patients, their families, and said, hey, will you look at these graphs and tell us what you think, or this data and tell us what you think? And even when it's not great, what they say is this, we're just so glad you're working on it. So we know that those places who are doing better in pursuing safety that's both proactive and reactive to defects and thinking way ahead of the stream about how to be ever safer, they, um, they're not afraid to talk about that. They're not afraid to show the data and to, to have it right out there. And I will tell you, uh, patients and families are enormously generous with um, just being so happy you're working on it. So thinking about transparency as both culture and a way for everybody to understand how we're doing. So, you know, when we, when we have meetings in the morning, Alan talked about morning huddles. You know, when we work with organizations, we're always thinking, have a huddle around your, your learning board or your data board where you're actually saying, this is how we're doing. It's better than we want. It's not as good as we want. Or whatever. What are we going to do more of today, less of today? What are we learning? Well, how might we change? How might we improve? And that's an active everyday process. It's not just about chartering a team, which is a great thing to do to get the initial improvement. But at some point, organization, the organizational units have to own that as their own and understand that data and what they're going to do with it 
um, is just so critical. And then reliability uh, for us, of course, is failure-free operation over time. How do we think about creating the same great results everywhere? So I'll often go to an organization and, and, and they'll tell me how great they're doing with central lines, which is, which is fantastic. I mean, that, that's just great work and great to hear. It's also true when I'll say, what about pick lines? And what about uh, other long lines? What about lines in dialysis? And the work has not spread there. So this notion of thinking holistically beyond the project of central lines to all long lines, uh, do they suffer this, a similar from similar problems as central lines? And how do we apply that learning across the organization and make sure that good improvement spreads and sticks? And that's all part of that learning system that is um, is is got strengths and and weaknesses in, in organizations today. Wow. Okay. Thanks, Carol. Uh, appreciate it. And um, I think what we're going to do with Carol and Alan and all of you, and thanks uh, folks who are already chatting in some very big ideas and thoughts and some questions, please keep them coming. I'm curious, as I've said earlier, what about this is resonating for you? I want John uh, to just remind us that Carol and Alan both will be at our forum in Orlando, and then we're going to go to your questions and comments. Go ahead, John. Yeah, thanks. This conversation will obviously continue in the uh, questions and comments in the chat, um, but we wanted to uh, take the time to say that if you're interested in continuing um, this great conversation on safety, uh, we're really happy to invite you to IHI's National Forum, which takes place next month in Orlando. Um, as Madge mentioned, uh, Karen, uh, Carol and uh, Alan will be um, at the sessions listed on your screen uh, in, in a mini keynote among them, uh, but we also encourage you to explore the dozens of learning labs, mini courses and sessions that are featured as part of the patient safety track. Um, for more information, visit IHI.org slash forum or reach out to us at info at IHI.org. All right, great. And reminders for people with chat? Yeah, by all means, uh, make sure that your questions and comments are uh, sent to all participants in the send to bar. Okay, thanks a lot. All right, folks, a uh, lot of it's, this is intense stuff. Uh, maybe some of the harder stuff: culture, learning, uh, reliability. I want to go back to this slide, John. Uh, the framework, one of the framework slides, uh, because engagement of patients and family uh, is in the center, and Alan and Carol both refer to it. And we do have a question about that. Uh, people are wondering to what extent uh, p patients and families, uh, uh, Carol, can not only be uh, appreciative of the transparency in the work, but also perhaps be involved in the work itself. And I'm curious, really, perhaps from both of you, where are we uh, with the engagement of patients and families uh, with the safety agenda? Uh, maybe, Alan, I'll start with you and then Carol. Sure. Uh, sure. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, look, you know, organizations are are in different journeys um, to the in the degree to which uh, patients participate in um, the care process and the decision making process, and it's a, uh, and the question you're asking is huge. Um, so, so let me address it from a systems perspective. Uh, in you know, in asking to what degree do do I see patients involved to the degree they should be. Um, and it's different in different countries. Uh, if you look at England, for example, um, you, you know, there are um, um, uh, patient representatives on every board um, across England, and they have been for years. They're just an intrinsic part of the way that care is delivered. If you look in the U.S., it's much more variable. 
Um, and I think there are areas of huge strength, and then and then lots of organizations I go into where uh, where they're actually pretty weak. If you're looking at this framework and asking where the overlap is, so if we get down to the individual work setting, once again, now and again, radiology, the emergency room, the billing office, the office practice, uh, where patients play a major role in this, uh, in the way I think about it, actually come is in this little area we call psychological safety. Once again, not a small one. So, you know, when Amy Edmondson described psychological safety in her books, she talked about, you know, I can ask questions without looking stupid. I can ask for feedback without looking incompetent. Um, I can be respectfully uh, critical without looking negative, And I can be um, innovative without looking disruptive. And we apply that to uh, the disciplines who work in healthcare. Um, and we should actually be talking to those disciplines, nurse, nursing assistant, you know, physician, uh, pharmacist, et cetera, um, and uh, delving into and, and reflecting on those concepts for the disciplines that are doing the work. But when you think about psychological safety in reference to patients, it turns out that the patient participation is exactly the same. They should, first and foremost, always be able to ask questions without looking stupid. They should be able to be respectfully uh, critical without looking negative. Uh, when they've got ideas, they should be able to suggest those ideas without looking disruptive or negative, as the case may be. Um, and they should be able to ask, you know, how they're doing in terms of participating. It's a little bit trickier to say, well, we're going to train patients to do that because you can train your employees around team behaviors and psychological safety, and you can train our leaders um, on the importance of creating psychological safety. Uh, but we also have to be um, robust as, as we engage with patients in creating the environment in which they feel psychologically safe, um, too. And so, you know, now... Learning systems are learning systems that self-reflect. Every single learning system, you know, once again, home care, um, the office practice, uh, the operating room, every one of them, when they stand in front of the huddle boards that Carol referred to, should be asking the question, to what degree did we engage patients effectively in the last 24 hours since our last huddle or the last 12 hours? Were patients able to ask questions? So once you begin to feed that process in um, into daily thinking, then the likelihood of getting patients engaged um, uh, becomes obviously much more robust. I'll add one other comment, and then you know I'd be interested in Carol's thoughts. These huddles that we have brought into healthcare, and I mean Carol and I have robustly advocated for these um, for literally two decades. Organizations are now doing them pretty robustly. What strikes me is that those precious, essential moments of time that we spend together in these huddles or, you know, briefings or pauses or checklists or timeouts or whatever you call them. Um, I think in 2016, our capacity to supercharge that essential time we spend together is one of the next, um, you know, fields of endeavor. Uh, my group is in the process of producing digital learning boards um, in the hopes that we can supercharge these conversations in such a way that they are more robust. They do bring the right questions to bear each day when people come together. They look at the cultural issues and the patient engagement issues as robustly as the operational ones of did we have equipment and, uh, you know, how many staff do we have today. 
Um, shaping those conversations is, is a journey that we're on that I think is going to improve over the next few years significantly um, and a place that I think we should all be targeting. Thank you. Uh, Carol, anything you might want to add? And I thought I would also lob at you a question about working across silos. Uh, and you were talking about, you know, one, uh, <laughs> one part of an organization, uh, having no idea, uh, that, uh, maybe some solutions were being found in another part of the organization. Wonder if you have any sense of whether that's improving or any examples. Uh, but if you also want to, uh, piggyback on anything Alan has said. Thanks. Well, I was just, uh, I was just answering a question or I think an observation um, that someone put in the, in the uh, chat about just as we thought we were already um, uh, pretty busy with a complex, complex needs of our organizations and, and regulatory uh, organizations, uh, along comes the need to increase self-care and functional status and uh, of course, patients have to be right at the center of that. It's their life, not our life. Uh, but the fact is that's a huge uh, shift for us. And, you know, even if we – and ultimately, if we redesigned, if we thought about safety, safe, reliable, and effective care, you can think of it two ways, I suppose. You can say, well, gosh, you, you left the hospital intact, and, and you ought to, you know, be thankful for that. Uh, we didn't give you an infection or not that we know of yet. And we, um, your home and your home in a reasonable amount of time. And you, we've fixed whatever problem, supposedly, we hope that you've come in with. So let's say you come in with surgery. So both, um, one of our colleagues, uh, uh another vice president of IHI, Frank Federico, who will be known to many of you for his work in safety, uh, uh both our mothers have been in the hospital and, and I think Alan's had family members as well. And they, their, their first problem is fixed. Uh, they, they, they were cured of the pneumonia, but my mother went on to die from other complications. Uh, uh, Frank's mother, uh, became deconditioned because, uh, while she did achieve better outcomes from the, the, the medical condition she came in with, they didn't take her, didn't move her, uh, out of the bed very often. Uh, she was a fall risk and, she left so deconditioned she had to go on to an alternative living situation and not back back to home, at least not right away. And so life, life change. So is that safe, effective, and reliable? Well, it depends on what you're talking about. You, you did cure uh, the person of the original problem, but I don't think they feel like their life has necessarily improved as a result. Mm-hmm. So when we think about this whole framework, we're – Thinking about it across the continuum, it's all of those things. It's it's going to be having these same conversations about what does this mean. Um, right now, for instance, we know that um, organizations who use the global trigger tool, for instance, they would often find people um, when they looked back in their records and they were looking at their records uh, for for uh, triggers and harm, they would find people who came into the organization with a pre-existing condition, and maybe it was from one of the hospitals in their system. But they didn't have a good way to get back to that organization and say, hey, look, you know, we're getting a number of your patients who are coming to us who have fallen at home or have gone on to develop uh, complications at home, and um, we think you ought to know that. 
you've got to, you talk about psychological safety, that's hard enough within your own organization. When you're starting to talk to your sister and brother organizations like that, now, um, and that's, their, that's information they need to improve. You're really going to have to have a, a, a way to manage those conversations, make them important, make them critical, say we, we've got to learn from one another, uh, both about our own performance and, uh, and what others are doing. And that, that becomes very challenging. Uh, that those become challenging conversations, but with really great leadership, transparency about the data, a way to talk about it so that we're not harming one another. Uh, people are accountable to share the information as accountable as they are to fix the problem, uh, by using good improvement methods and, and we're continuously learning about how we're getting better, how others are getting better across the continuum. And we need that feedback from our partners in outpatient to say, hey, you know, your people who have, who have been discharged, um, diabetics who have been discharged with, with uh, surgery, we're seeing them and their diabetes. So their surgery was correct, but their diabetes is, is, is off track. We need that. We need that conversation because we're, we're gonna, we may well say, Gosh, that patient got safe, effective, and reliable care. They went home, and their surgery was correct. They didn't get any surgical-related infections or complications. But the fact is there were other problems that that hospitalization created, and we're never going to improve. And for us, you know, I think for long term, we thought, gee, just getting out of the hospital and, and, and you know, having good care there was great. It is great. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. If patients are left less capable when they go home and develop uh, collateral issues that were not necessarily seen as the primary reason for while they were there, but patients sadly bring to the hospital all their problems, physical, mental, psychological, family, and we've got to manage those across. And the only way to do that is to be talking to one another and learning from one another. Thank you, Carol. And I want to make a mention, uh, thinking about some of the themes here and across the continuum of care, um, you know, you're getting just a taste of some imagery and concepts uh, that will be in a new IHI white paper uh, coming out soon that uh, Allen's organization and IHI have been working on. And I think uh, there will be even more about the how and examples and that kind of thing. Uh, we're sort of delving in at this stage, and I do promise 2017 we'll do more on safety on WIHI. Um, maybe going to Alan for a moment here, I sense a certain amount of frustration in the chat about culture change. Somebody's wondering how you accelerate it. Another person is talking about the fact that everyone seems very open to talking about culture, and then the minute uh, the consultant leaves, seems like everybody goes back to their bad habits. Um, maybe there's a little bit of pointing at leaders here. Um, somebody else is wondering about measures. How do you know if your culture is changing? Uh, Alan, you might have alluded to a few things, and certainly you were talking about Amy Ed Edmondson's criteria um, for a kind of safety uh, issue there, but a psychological safety. But um, are there some good measures about culture change and uh, any uh, <laughs> tips for accelerating it? Thanks. Sure. Uh, Matt, no, thanks, and, I, and I've actually also been looking at the comments, and they are uh, that's, that's spot on and and typical of the experience we have when we go into organizations. Uh, you know, there's one from 
Um, but I think it's Mike Jackson who talks about, well, we do walk rounds um, and we do team huddles and our art scores didn't change. And we spent, you know, then we were spending hours in front of the huddle boards. Um, uh, and uh, I, and I, I hear that. Uh, certainly I hear that. I mean, I've, I've got a couple of thoughts. One is that um, the our, well, let me just talk about the ARC scores for a second. Uh, the safety attitudes questionnaire came to exist in 1994 as kind of one of the dominant culture surveys we were using. Um, the ARC instrument, you know, came in in 2004. It's uh, 12 years old. Um, the argument that I had with both of those and have with the people who produced them and had discussions with folks like Brian Sexton at Duke who brought in the SAQ is that the questions are What's the main, SAQ, not, Alan? Oh, uh, the, the, sorry, the safety attitudes questionnaire. You know, in the ARC or the, or the HSOPS, Hospital Survey on Patient Safety, were the kind of two big surveys that uh, that kind of swept across the U.S., even though there were you know, a large number of others also. There were like seven or eight others uh, that have been used, you know, by in a variety of organizations and offered by a variety of folks in the industry. In the last three years, um, my group's been working with, uh, Brian Sexton and the Duke Safety Center um, on a on an instrument that we're calling SCORE, um, Safety Communication Organization Risk and Reliability and Engagement, um, in in an effort to try to focus the surveys more robustly or effectively to identify the issues of importance in 2016. Um, and indeed, I think we've I think we're beginning to achieve that with the instrument that the instrument that we're using. Um, but, so, but Mike's question was, well, the ARC, our ARC scores didn't change, um, you know, after we went in and kind of instituted these team behaviors. Um, and then uh, a comment from, I think, Wendy um, uh, was, yes, and I go in as a consultant. I work with leaders, but when I leave, uh, things get go back to being the way they were. Well, if you start with the end in mind and then work backwards, and ask, you know, what are the struggles that folks have that I have, uh, as does Carol and IHI when we go into organizations. Um, when you look at the end in mind with these organ- with these work settings that look fantastic when you go into them, they have characteristics that repeat over and over again. And tr- quite frankly, they're platitudes that get written up in the Harvard Business School. And if you look at Laszlo Bock's book, uh, who's, you know, the, the kind of, what is it, the head of human relations, I mean, he's essentially the personnel person for Google, Google has the culture, uh, as far as I can tell, and I've gotten to kick the tires on Google. Google has the culture that we want in healthcare. And so you ask, what is it that characterizes those cultures? Well, indeed, leaders come down and talk to the work settings. That's a kind of walk rounds. Well, indeed, they do have huddles. Or, and the huddles are, um, shaped in such a way that people walk away from them and on a daily basis saying, I have voice in my work setting. When I speak up, um, people hear my voice and action gets taken. And, which co- corroborates with the Google um, analysis, uh, and this is Rosovsky's work that was written up in one of the New York Times magazine's articles about six months ago. The other thing that people say in these work settings when they're really robust is, the people I work with... Um, are aware of how I feel, and they and they take note when I don't seem to be doing well or when I seem to be doing really well. I mean, so what's extraordinary, and again, in Google, is that the two characteristics, I have voice, 
so when I speak up, something happens. And number two, people are aware of how I feel, you know, and I'll remind you that Google's got 15,000, you know, IT engineers. So these guys are, you know, and women are not touchy-feely. Um, and yet those turn out to be the characteristics that make that organization robust, and those are the characteristics that make the, the work settings that I walk into robust. So the question I think you have to ask is, if I do, if my organization does walk rounds, if we do huddles and if we have a huddle board, um, do those lead to the cultural base on which you can build a learning system? And if the answer is, well, no, we haven't quite gotten there yet, then you have to do the self-reflection um, or you have to do the analysis to say, well, so what are the pieces that are missing? When my leaders come down and engage around the huddle boards, you know, in what way does the conversation further aim setting and actions being taken in that environment? When we do our team briefings, what does, or the huddles, what percentage of it is operational? What percentage of it is cultural? What percentage of it um, has some patient involvement that keeps us being honest? Um, you know, all of these are nuances that turn out to be exceptionally important to get right if you want the work settings to each be effective learning systems. When you have serial learning systems that are robust, you now have service lines and organizations that begin to flourish. And we have the names of those, like Theta Care that, you know, Toussaint did work in, and um, certainly Virginia Mason was and may still be, um, but, uh, you know, Kaplan did extraordinary work there. And then we've got Cincinnati Children's, which is the darling um, of the pediatric hospitals. In those entities, they managed to bring together the, the appropriate leadership and behavioral components in order to create these learning systems. And that, I think, is our challenge in 2016. There are nuances to doing this work that um, we are learning about and applying but we are still in the process of learning. We haven't nailed them down. Wow. Okay. So um, maybe I've said wow too many times. So I guess I'm learning a lot. I talk about a learning system. I'm learning a lot listening to Alan and Carol today, and I hope you are as well. We are going to have to wrap up, and I think, Alan, you you sort of fulfilled the wrap-up segment, I think, with kind <laughs> of where, where we're headed. And I did say at the beginning that, Planning this program really made me feel that there is an inflection point, uh, new, some new ideas, new mindsets. I want to thank everybody who was uh, able, were, who were able to kind of be along for the ride of maybe some thirty thousand foot thinking. Um, I find that very interesting in combination with Alan's thoughts about nuances, uh, and also that we're going to be learning from other industries, uh, perhaps more than we might have imagined. So, uh, um, thank you, Alan and Carol. I'm going to give sort of the final word to you with any parting uh, thoughts you might have to leave people with uh, so everybody can, you know, get up tomorrow and uh, maybe have something <laughs> something actionable that they could uh, do. Go ahead. Well, you know, I would say, first of all, thank you so much for your wonderful thoughts and for your work every day. Uh, for those of us who uh, our families who have to go to the hospital and the clinics and nursing homes at times, we're awfully glad you're there. Uh, there are successful models out there for everything we've talked about. Uh, there are people doing great work. Uh, someone chatted in about physician engagement. There are people who are working uh, on contractual obligations. That's one thing, but also compacts 
Um, their memorial care in California, our good friend Helen McPhee, they have a physician organization uh, there. It's uh, it's an agree, it's a it's a voluntary organization where they come together to think about uh, how they're going to work together and improve. And uh, they have a very strong tie, tight tie with the with the hospital and the clinics. And it's a way to to acknowledge uh, independent um, practitioners who are not necessarily. Uh, who are not necessarily um, uh, employed. So there are all there's just these exciting models out there that are working. That I know um, uh, they do take energy. They do take someone to stand up and say, "Yeah, I think we ought to try something different. What we're doing isn't working," and that's uh, that's a big piece of it. Um, what you can do tomorrow, I would I would I would ask you. To try this model that we've got is a little diagnostic yourself and say, where do we think we're strong? Where do we think we're less strong? Um, where is it we need a lot more work? And really look into this. Uh, think about this holistically. Uh, continue to work, do the great work on your projects that you have to do. Uh, those are really important. Those individual defects uh, will, will serve no one. Uh, none of us want them, and we don't want to give them to anyone either. And at the same time, start thinking across the system. What are we doing about those cross-organizational problems? And use this framework as a little diagnostic like we do to try to think about where you might go from here. Um, there are there, there, there are so much good work going on out there. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, I said wow again. Okay. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Carol Harridan. Thank you, Alan Frankel. Thanks for all your good work. Thank you for being a fabulous audience today. Uh, you really contributed to some of the thinking we were all doing during this hour, uh, resources uh, and ideas. Somebody was really right at the uh, keyboard there with some great links uh, for resources in addition to our own Vicki Minden in here. So uh, again, my thanks. Next up on WIHI, we're actually continuing with safety in November. We're going to talk about how to speak up for safety. Interesting work going on at a system in Toronto, and we've got uh, Greg Meyer from the Boston area who's going to be on board as well. And We're going to find out where the rubber meets the road, which is how do you speak to other staff members, uh, a colleague, a superior, uh, about behavior that may not be contributing to safety. Uh, so we're going to look right at that uh, human dilemma. A reminder, you can download the chat and any slides we use for our discussion today when you log off, but all those materials, if you forget, all those materials will be on the archive page, and you can find the audio on the archive page as soon as later today or tomorrow morning, and you can also find it on uh, as a podcast on iTunes. Any questions whatsoever, please email info at IHI.org. Great group of people help make WIHI possible, and they include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth James, and Haley Ladd. And as always, it's my privilege to host this program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all, and I should say culture change too, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Thanks to our guests. Thanks to you, audience. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day.